Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to episode 26 of the Retrospectives podcast. My name is Patrick Arthur, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, James Sterlings. How you going, James? Good. You know, I'm feeling absolutely stuffed. I've been stuffing my face with pies and cakes these past few days, as I'm sure everyone has over the Christmas period. And you know what? I kind of I need a I need a break from this break. It's too much. I need to go back to work. Just let me out of this candy-filled hellhole, Patrick. Yeah, that's what it's been for me. Is like like my family is very split up, so I end up going to like four or five different Christmas events, and at every single one of them, you have Christmas food. And let me tell you, by the time you get to the fifth one you start to get a little sick of uh of having ham as ridiculous as that as that sounds no i don't um, believe it <laughs> <laughs> i know it's hard to believe but i swear to god it's true as someone who has <laughs> to do this every single year it is so nice that all of that shit is finally over and i can go back to doing what i love which is talking about video games this week um we have a special episode too right we do so instead of doing our usual thing where we play through a retro game and then we talk about whether it's for the test of time we're doing something a little more fun a little different and something that gives us a break from actually uh you know putting the foot down <laughs> to the metal and uh actually playing through a video game we're doing an extensive mailbag and game of the year review so to start with we're going to be going over a bunch of listener questions and answers something that i think we i want to implement um going forward into the new year into our next season so uh, ho- hopefully it's uh, a bit fun, a bit different for everyone, and you can get a, uh, a bird's eye view of uh, what, what we thought of the games we played this year. And of course, if you liked hearing about us talking about any of the games on this episode, don't forget to go and check out the full-length episodes over on our website. So, um, Patrick, how did you want to start this? Did we want to just start off with the questions? Uh, there's quite a few, so uh, we'll get stuck in. Um, a lot of them are just someone asking a question, then James and I are giving our opinions and hopefully getting into an argument. But uh, we'll, we'll just play it by ear, answer them, and see how we go. Yeah, and all of these are straight from our Discord. Um, so thank you to everybody who submitted questions. Um, we really appreciate it. And um, I guess we get started now. So, Patrick, the first question comes from user Hexity, and it is, as a whole, how do you feel about this year in gaming? You know, this was actually one of the um, harder questions for me to answer because... Because I've been playing all of these retro games and I've played all these retro games to completion, my perspective on video gaming this year is a little warped. Um, I haven't played heaps and heaps of modern releases, but I did my research and I went through and I went through all of the major releases this year. And I think overall, this year was kind of a little bit slow. I think that there was at least one big release that will satisfy every single person because there were a lot of niche interest games released this year. You had stuff like the Resident Evil 2 remake, which appeals to horror fans. And you had a puzzle game like Barbara is You, which is a hardcore puzzle game, you know, similar to Steven Sausage Roll. But in terms of like, can I pinpoint five incredible games that I love to bits this year? The truth is I simply can't. It's more like there were one or two games which I really enjoyed and then a lot of ones which were kind of okay. So, uh, yeah, I think that if you look at this year to com- compared to a year like 2017, it's definitely a slow. Really? You know, my opinion's 
completely the opposite on you here. Um, there are games that came out this year that I've been waiting like decades to play, right? Like Kingdom Hearts 3 came out this year, Death Stranding came out this year, Devil May Cry 5 came out this year, Sekiro came out this year, Borderlands 3 came out this year. So many games that I'd been waiting years and years for just came out all at once and I simply like did not have time to play all of them. You know, as you said, we've been doing the show this year, we've played 25 games through completion and I found myself buying all of these games and then only getting one or two hours into them so I guess overall as a big perspective I think this year was really big and I've actually been like trying to find out what I'm excited for next year and I'm just turning up nothing in comparison. I think next year is going to be nothing compared to what we got this year. I think this year was actually really big. The one thing I will say though is that I think this year was very safe aside from perhaps Death Stranding. I don't think many games came out that really pushed the envelope of the medium as a whole. So you talk about all these games like Borderlands 3 and Devil May Cry 5 and you talk about them as though they're great games and honestly I don't think any of those titles except Sekiro really you know satisfy the criteria of being a great game. I think a lot of them are a bit of fun but I when I look at particularly something like Borderlands 3 like I got bored of that game. I got bored of Control. I got bored of Outer Worlds. It's not that there's anything wrong with these games. It's not that they're a bad experience. It's just that I just don't see anything particularly compelling about them. They've got that AAA sheen to them, but they've been robbed of, I don't know, anything special. And it's like, yeah, Devil May Cry 5 is a good example of like a really good game that appeals to a very niche audience. But I wouldn't say it was like a special game to me. When I played Devil May Cry, I wasn't like, I'm having an unbelievable experience. It would it just felt like more of what I'd been given previously. I think the very the very fact that you've only played an hour of these games really shows that maybe they're not as good as you're suggesting. I never suggested they were good. My point was that like these games I'd been waiting for finally came out. Oh yeah, sure. For me, these games, yeah, that I was theoretically interested in came out, and then I realized that I wasn't nearly as interested in them as I thought. If I like a game, and I mean really like it, I'm going to play it and finish it, even with these other games going on. And there were very few games that I felt compelled to do that. So yeah, this this year, it wasn't horrible, uh, but for me, yeah, nowhere near as good as 2017. Sekiro is probably the game I had the most fun with this year, but I didn't play too much of it because I had other commitments. So I guess um, it is fair to say that, yes, a lot of stuff did come out this year, but nothing really, you know, blew me away. Yeah, and that's fair enough. Like, we've both um, we've both had to play all these podcast games, so that sucked a lot of potential time away as well. Um, so next question is from Cyanstorm slash Drew from Will and Drew's Gaming Retrospective. He gave me a lot of help setting up the Discord, and I still listen to that cast. Two guys in their, oh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say early, late 20s, early 30s, and hopefully I haven't, you know, messed up their ages. And uh, they play games, but unfortunately they're, they're constantly running into the practicalities of uh, having a full-time job in life. So I find them pretty entertaining to listen to. His question is, during your journey into the past, what have you found that older games did that newer games no longer do? Is it a good or a bad thing that games have evolved away from these things? 
So I found this one kind of interesting and I my answer I think is less to do with a change in trends and just kind of the natural progression of a medium. I think older games were generally much more uh, risk-taking perhaps or like more inventive. So this year we played stuff like uh, Diablo, The Lost Vikings, Vagrant Story, all games that tried to do something incredibly unique for their time. And you know I don't think we really see too much of that anymore. You know we had Death Stranding this year that tried to push the envelope and you know the results are questionable. But oh, on the whole I think a lot of the games that are coming out are you know really uh, happy just to stick with the tried and true formulas you know they're very expensive projects and just sticking the regular first person shooter or a platformer is a lot safer than trying to reinvent the wheel with every game and i, I broadly agree with you if you look at mainstream game releases in particular risk taking it's like a forgotten art form you know sequels are so common nowadays and we you know as we're hitting two three four and various franchises the indie scene i think is the one the one holdout where risk taking still occurs overall yeah i i do agree with you i mean even in the indie scene there's just like thousands of different variations on roguelites right i i yeah that's also fair the steam store has become like a complete nightmare to navigate and discover new titles it used to be that um you'd go to the steam store and there'd be you know one or less games released per day and so whenever a new game came out you were really interested in it and tended to have a certain level of polish and early <laughs> access didn't exist and there weren't a hundred hentai sex games but now there's dozens of them day. every day much know, to patrick's like, enjoyment <laughs> yeah so i do think that yes in addition it's there's a discoverability problem with good indie games although Word of mouth does tend to be the best way to discover them. If you look at, you know, what people are talking about, you can usually find good ones. It, it less feels like I'm finding them and more than I'm relying on other people to find them for me, which mm. is a little frustrating. My answer to this question is kind of a little bit sideways to what you're saying. The number one thing for me about old games versus new games is that I think that new games in general are a lot more focused on controlling the player experience yes uh there's a lot of cutscenes. there's a lot of animations that like long animations that play out in certain points there's a lot of faux cutscenes where it's not literally a cutscene, but you're kind of locked in a box and are forced to engage in a particular way there's a lot of like you know research put into making sure the player like points their perspective or the camera in the right location to discover the thing they need to do like the science of orientating and controlling the player in video games has become a lot more refined whereas i think in older video games and obviously we're painting with broad strokes here and we're generalizing a bit but in older video games you don't have that same sense of cinematic quality there we didn't quite have the convergence of cinema and games that happened in the like mid to late 2000s a lot of these are games which are focused on like systems and they're focused on like more raw gameplay and as a result you kind of often get these clunky unintuitive awkward experiences but the experiences feel more unique and it feels more organic. Like you're, you're, you're having an experience that results from the video game instead of the director trying to control every single way you point a given controller. 
Yeah, I agree with that. And I actually think that this phenomenon that you're talking about, where the game designers will try to force a particular kind of experience on the player, kind of started with a lot of these PS3 era movie games from Sony, honestly. Um, stuff like The Last of Us and Uncharted, all these kind of experience games that are less about the moment to moment gameplay and more upon like trying to be a movie and a game at the same time, right? Yeah. And my problem with that is like, I really like movies like i'm a movie buff like i'm not like super into it but i i like good movies i really like good books like i'm super into well-crafted stories and when i sit down to play a video game i'm not looking for a narrative or like cinematic experience i want to play a game like if if i want to watch a movie i'll watch a good movie and a good movie is so far ahead of a good video game story that it's, it's unreal. And a good book is, you know, also so far ahead of it. So I've never really liked, you know, Uncharted or Red Dead Redemption or any of these video games because I don't really play those games for the story. And I think that if you're not playing them and an investor in the story, it's just a mediocre gameplay experience. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I it's not that, you know, cinematic games are bad. Like, obviously, they appeal to a lot of people. I don't have a problem with their existence, but they're just not ideal for the sort of gaming experience I'm after. Yep. Um, I actually had a um, uh, runner-up for this uh, question as well um, about something that games used to do a lot, but do so less these days, and that's rely on quick saving as the only means of saving your game. I think <laughs> that happens a lot less these days, right? Yeah, and quick saving in particular is a uh, is a pc gaming thing yeah and i think that it came up in a lot of the games that i selected because i selected a lot of pc games from when i was younger and i i remarked in i think it was in the thief episode that for a very long time i was firmly of the opinion that quick saving was like the superior way to implement a save system you know it's like well i should be able to determine when i say but after playing all these games with quick saving I am firmly of the opinion that quick saving sucks. Yeah. Like, yeah, I just don't have the self-control to stop myself doing it a lot of the time, honestly. Um, but the thing is, you shouldn't have to have the self-control. Like, they give you a button that says you can save as much as you want. Like, yeah. if you don't, like, why wouldn't you use it as much as you feel you needed to use it uh, mm. to avoid frustration? So, yeah, I, I think that the move away from quick saving is one of the big benefits moving into the future as much as i love pc games i want to go against the grain here i actually don't think there's a problem with frustration and in certain doses and situations um frustrating the player can be beneficial like um you've got a really difficult boss fight that you're getting frustrated on but like the other side of the coin is when you finally overcome that frustration and beat the fight you feel really good with quick saving um I, those moments happen a lot less often and I find that the levels you go through, you know, can be super easily broken by these systems. It's not a satisfying gameplay experience if the game designer doesn't, like, measure out these chunks that make sense to be, you know, separated by checkpoints. In the very first episode we did Doom, one of the good things about that game is that we agreed to only have a save at the beginning of each level. Yeah. And it forced us to play the entire level from start to finish. Uh, even if we died halfway through, you, had, you, you know, you were sent all the way back to the start and it created a level of tension going through the game because at any moment there needs to be that risk 
to your progress. If you don't lose anything, it's like nothing ventured, nothing gained. So yeah, yeah I I think that having regular checkpoints is good. And the regularity of that checkpoints will, you know, vary depending on the game. Like I don't want to be set back an hour. But yeah, yeah losing five to ten minutes, maybe maybe five minutes is somewhere around the it's ideal. Fine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's fine and I think it improves the experience because because it makes you a lot more um, a lot more focused because uh when things can go wrong in any moment it's uh it's more engaging. Yeah, so definitely some good things and some bad things um that older games do that newer games don't. So thank you Science Storm for that question. Uh, moving on we have a very special question from a long-time <laughs> listener of the show that uh, is very obviously specifically directed at Patrick. Um <laughs> as many people who listen and um for the you know for context of the new, anyone listening now um Patrick has this big problem where he cannot stop talking about dark souls it isn't um, a problem <laughs> it's just a phase <laughs> um so ben asks, also known as do boulders gate to you cowards ben ben really wants us to play this 100 hour isometric yeah. rpg <laughs> uh, i think well, he maybe even one wants day us, we'll get there he even wants us to skip the first game he wants us to do it so badly it's not happening anytime soon, Ben. I'm just saying. Just saying. Um, so Ben asks, what game this year most reminded you of Dark Souls? <laughs> I gotta say, this is my favorite question out of all of them. And the reason it's so difficult is because every game reminds me of Dark Souls. Because the objectively superior way to view video games as a whole is to view everything through the lens of Dark Souls. So, you know, every game reminds me of Dark Souls, but but Ben has correctly said which game this year most reminds me of Dark Souls. So before I get into my answer, I do have an honourable mention, and it's also the obvious answer. Mm. My honourable mention is Castlevania Symphony of the Night. The reason it's so obvious is that Dark Souls takes, like, direct inspiration from a lot of the aspects of Castlevania, and 2D Metroidvanias in general. It's got the same sort of looping, shortcut, heavy level design. It's got that same gothic atmosphere. And even like small details like the weapon list. So, you know, like scimitars and claymores and everything. It feels like 80% of them are just lifted directly from Castlevania's Mm. uh, weapon list. But the reason I didn't put Castlevania as the game most like Dark Souls is that even though its level design is similar, I think the core gameplay of Castlevania is a lot more RPG-esque in that it's more about, you know, coming up with the right item set and finding the right strategy to defeat enemies and beat bosses as opposed to getting good, which is kind of like the thing I associate more with Dark Souls. I think it's a scale, right? I think um, Dark Souls leaves a lot, uh, leans a lot harder towards um, player mechanical skill than it does, you know, mm. um, kind of preparation and what you equip your character with and how you level them up before the fight. Whereas I think Symphony of the Night definitely did lean a bit more towards your gear slots and how you played, but you could definitely get through the whole game um, player skill alone, right? Yeah, it, at least for me, it was a lot harder to do that because of like the size, relative size of the hitboxes. Yeah. And you, Alucard has a huge model uh, yeah, as opposed does. to something like Hollow Knight. So dodging attacks is, it's not, it's not impossible. It, it just feels a bit clunky and awkward at mm. all times. It felt less like I was mastering the combat system and more that I was kind of tanking a lot of damage in my attempts to do it. 
and you know you could do stuff like drink three potions and become overpowered and yep. just kill kill Any anything boss. you chose. Well, that's how I beat Dark Souls One myself. So you know, <laughs> not too different. <laughs> I think that Castlevania Symphony of the Night obviously has a lot in common, but it's not my it's not my answer. Do Do you have an honorable mention? Or I have an honorable mention. Um, and I kind of I kind of I've got um two answers as well. Um, and the thing that defines the Souls games for me are one, it's um depressing atmosphere. And B, you know, it's just its level of unforgivingness, I guess, um, that just permeates all of the gameplay. And so my runner-up for most depressing atmosphere and dreary world is Kirby Nightmare in Dreamland. It's 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 the most Dark Souls like game we played this year. I, I see you, agree? you selected answers specifically to trigger me, and even <laughs> though I know that it's still working, and I'm still getting triggered. Oh, Kirby okay. is the um, exact so opposite I'll... of Dark Souls. Do you have an actual honorable mention, or are you just trying to piss me off? No, I don't. <laughs> all right, all right. Should, should I should I go into my actual answer then? Yes. Okay. So my actual answer is Cave Story. And uh, it's specifically because there are a few fights in Cave Story which I think perfectly capture getting good. The, the first one was the Heart of the Core, or Heart of the Island, whatever it's called, uh, the first uh, big fight against the Core. And that's one that James breezed through. But for me, I, yeah. I found it really difficult. I think I did mechanics straight away or something, but I died a lot in that boss fight. But the real, the real Dark Souls moment comes in that final um, normal ending boss fight stretch where you have to fight the Witch Misery, then you fight the Doctor who has two stages before you finally go on to stage three of that fight and there's like, uh, th- there's like someone summoning monsters against you, which is the buffed up Misery. There's your friend who's attacking you immediately and there's a more powerful Heart of the Core all in the same room. <laughs> And there's yeah. no healing in between any of these <laughs> sections. And the process I took of dying, you know, to misery a lot before finally nailing each boss fight and finally defeating the final one through my skill felt mm. very Dark Souls-esque because it took me, I don't know, two to three hours total to overcome that, which, you know, may I'm tell you how bad I am at these um... videos. <laughs> I'm surprised you mentioned the bosses as the thing that reminds you of it and not the final cave, which is really just that long level with a boss at the end that sends you back to the start if you lose. I didn't actually find that final cave super Dark Souls-esque because I was... I, I Basically, it felt like I could do all of the bits and pieces like it was easy to reach the end of the cave every single time it's more that it was uh time consuming because when i go through i guess the difficult regular parts of a level of dark souls often the first time i'm playing a new dark souls game i feel that it's challenging and i can run out of estus and i can die to regular enemies when i learned how to get through that final cave i got to the end every single time it just took forever to get to the end of the cave so yeah, I, did. I didn't quite like that. Whereas the boss fight, I would die to misery like 20 runs in because I was <laughs> playing like an idiot trying to rush through it. So yeah, it was that final that final boss rush was, um, you know, the highlight of the game. And when, when I felt I'm like, yeah, this, this game is just like Dark Souls. Yeah. 
Um, so I guess for me, my answer um, kind of relates to the absolute um, unforgiving nature of the series. And so my answer for game that most reminded me of Souls this year was F-Zero. F-Zero is a game that teaches you absolutely nothing and expects you to learn on your own through sheer repetition and like force of will. This game's story was absolutely brutal to get through. Patrick didn't even make it to the end. No. And it just like, it does not let up and it forces you to get good. And really, that's just the essence of the Souls games to me. I don't know. I think F-Zero GX is like considerably more difficult than Dark Souls. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and and that's why I kind of like put it a bit lower. Because, you know, when I first started playing Dark Souls, I was really bad. Like I, I had never really played a 3D platformer with combat, really, because I was always on mouse and keyboard. So, you know, I, I don't know if I call it a platformer. PC. It well, has sure, sorry. bad platforming elements, sure. No, no, I, I know it's not a platformer. I'm just saying like that sort of perspective, third person perspective was something I was very unfamiliar with and bad. And, you know, I guess it's maybe the same with F-Zero, but even when I was bad at Dark Souls, I felt like I could make progress in a way that I felt like F-Zero was just throwing up brick walls in my way, man. <laughs> it wasn't It wasn't difficult slopes and they weren't doors mad. Like the doors in Dark Souls, you ram your face into them enough times and the door starts to get battered down. The walls in F-Zero GX are made of steel. Yeah. I just felt like I was making zero progress. Hey, I got there in the end, but it was definitely a huge, uh, huge hill to climb. But uh, I'm glad I did it in the end. It was very satisfying. Maybe if I'd had some more experience with racing games before going into literally the yeah. hardest fucking one ever, <laughs> I, I might have stood more of a chance. But yeah, it was, I'm it was very cool. glad I chose it that week. <laughs> yeah, so, so thank you for the question, Ben. The best question. Um, it's it's me next, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So my next question is from Bruno, and Bruno says, "What are your comfort games?" Comfort games. So I guess this means games that you play, you know, when there's nothing else to play, or you just kind of want to chill out and not be stressed out too much. That's what I took it like. Something that just makes you feel happy that you that you can always go to and have some fun with. My comfort games this year, in particular, were a Super Hexagon. Um, a brilliant game um, that I can just sit there playing for, you know, maybe an hour or so and have fun and listen to the music. Yeah, have you uh, have you beaten it, by the way? Yeah, I have. It, it took yeah. me so long to beat it. I'm embarrassed to look at my Steam hours playing Super Hexagon. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I think mine's 46. Oh, I've got like 30 hours in that game somehow. It's just like... <laughs> you know if you know you could beat this game in like four minutes if you knew what you were doing but um yeah so i just love playing that game i find it's very hypnotic very you know easy to play after like a long day at work mm -hmm. um my second game is path of exile which I, you know i like arpgs and i like just i like the grind honestly um and just kind of like sitting there and you know and just walking in a line creating absolute destruction um, and, you know, getting some fun, like, items off the ground and that kind of thing. And then finally, um, and I don't know if this is, like, a relaxing game per se, but the game that I always, always, Dude. always come back to in the end, um, Dota 2. Um, it is an infuriating game, but there's something comforting about winning a long 90-minute slog that just appeals to me. And, um, you know, as an Australian, we love our bants down here. Shit-talking in team chat, you know, that's the stuff. That's what gets me to sleep at night. So while I wouldn't, don't find Path of Exile, you know, like, relaxing, I can kind of, I get that. I get that how you can kind of sink into a trance. 
I do not understand how you can call Dota <laughs> to your comfort game, particularly if the game goes for 90 minutes. So I, I've played a lot of Dota 2 as well, but not recently. I used to be really into it and engaged. Um, I used to make fun of James' low MMR when I had a better MMR. But trust me, the tables have now thoroughly switched. Thoroughly turned. Thoroughly turned. <laughs> uh, but the reason I started to become disengaged from Dota was because of the intensity of the experience like when the game gets to the 40 or 50 minute mark you you have to like be hyper focused and concentrated and i just started to tune out like i just i couldn't keep playing through these absolute slog fests of games because i'd get you know what it reminds me of it reminds me of being in the middle of like a three-hour university exam like it's intense this is not a good thing how is this comfortable you're so focused on it that nothing else about your life matters it's like the perfect escapism you don't have to think about work or what's going on with your family you're just a hundred percent focused on this video game and that's absolute bliss yeah maybe my problem was that i couldn't keep that focus like i'd keep alt tabbing out and watching youtube videos and stuff which is also maybe why my friends wanted to stop playing with me. yeah i <laughs> i kind of lost interest although i still do enjoy watching um the international every single year mm. all right so as for you my comfort games yeah so my comfort games i also have another terry kavanagh title which uh we've already had his uh super hexagon mentioned but my comfort title by him is vvvvv it's um a short and simple platformer where instead of jump having a jump key you instead flip the gravity and your first play through this game will be like three hours it's a very short game um, but nowadays, I can blitz through it in less than an hour very easily. So I've played through this game, like, I don't know, something something ridiculous, like eight times. And the reason it's got such high replayability is that it keeps throwing new mechanics at you. It feels like every five minutes. So you never get stuck so long with something that you get bored. I love the music. I love, it's kind of, it kind of feels like a nostalgic game to me, even though I only played it, you know, five years ago or whatever. It's just good fun. And and I'll, if I ever I've got the, you know, feeling a bit down, I can put on vvvvv blitz through it in an hour and feel good at the end of it yeah excellent have you ever played it or no i haven't touched it actually i played it for like maybe 10 minutes on a friend's computer and then thought yeah it's okay yeah hi- highly recommend it to anyone i think you'll like it because you you tend to like you know hard platformers uh, yeah. And and stuff, yeah yeah but my i think my main comfort game is probably binding of isaac or binding of isaac rebirth which is the fixed version because the original one came out on flash and flash is a shitty engine flash is shitty everything was remade from the ground up but bunny of isaac rebirth is like an rng roguelike with bullet hell elements and you know zelda like exploration where you're going from room to room and the great thing about bunny of isaac is that every run is feels very unique because the number of like items and variables is absurd now like the games had something like five DLC packs total. So, you know, there are 200 items and a lot of them have like very dramatic changes to the way you play the game. But even with that randomness on what what items you get, it hits the right balance. Because when you get good at these games, you get good at dodging enemies and you get a lot of meta knowledge on how to use your bombs and keys effectively. So... Every run or nearly every run still feels winnable, regardless of how good or bad your luck is. 
and a run takes 20 to 30 minutes. So Binding of Isaac is my number one comfort game. I can always fire it up and have a good time with it. So thanks, Bruno, for that question. Um, so I guess the next one is from Hexody again, and that was, which game surprised you the most this year? So do you want to start us off, James, because I just answered the last one. Yeah, I guess you've been talking for, um, you know, 20 minutes now. <laughs> Too long. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I would say that um, the game that surprised me the most this year is actually um, Armored Core, which surprised me with just how bad its controls were. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Armored Core is a game that has looking up it's a third person action game right with you know if it was made now it would have twin stick controls on a controller you know you move with the left stick and you look about with the right stick Armored Core however was made in an era before analog sticks but just after the PlayStation 1 was released so it had um, movement on the left d-pad and it had looking up and down on the shoulder buttons, um, which was very unintuitive. And I spent the entire 12 hours or so of my playthrough of it just fighting the controls constantly. I just, I am impressed that From Software even attempted a third person control scheme before analog sticks existed. But seriously, it was awful. Yeah, so like, I agree. The controls are awful. And I think it was the worst control scheme of like any game we played. But I guess the gap for me between that and the next control scheme is a lot smaller. Because I am so used to uh, mouse and keyboard, and I only really got into 3D platformers after I, uh, after you know, the industry standard was to use the analog sticks. A lot of the PlayStation 1 era games we play with the cameras on the shoulder button feel awful to me. Like, I hate them, you know, as a thing for Vagrant Story, as a thing for Ape Escape. Whereas it seems James was like way more comfortable, comfortable with that. It was yeah. I grew up with like a Nintendo sixty four and a PlayStation one, and you know, yeah. heaps of console games. So I was very used to that kind of thing. So, so I, I wasn't. So I thought all of those games had you know bad controls. So when it when this game came around, I'm like, oh, just another shitty control system. Whereas it seems like James is finally experiencing something equal to my level of pain. That I had with these uh, PS1 era games. I, I was incredibly surprised by this control scheme. I just wanted I wanted it to <laughs> stop. <laughs> and even though I ended up enjoying the game overall, kind of, it was really it's like impossible for me to tell somebody else to play that game because of that control system. Um, so I guess um, other than Armored Core, which is a big negative surprise this year, I had one very good surprise, mm -hmm. and that was how good the atmosphere in Diablo 1 was. I've played a lot of ARPGs, like pretty much most of them, and I still think that Diablo 1's atmosphere tops all of them by a country mile. That game is so spooky and eerie, and I just, I loved it. The atmosphere seeped into every part of the game experience, and it was just incredible. And I was not expecting that out of a game so old, you know. Um, I figured that newer games would have learned from the past and made something special, but really it's just head and shoulders ahead of everything else in that department. Yeah, I, I think the atmosphere is the main asset of Diablo 1 far ahead of his gameplay. So I think going in, I was also surprised at, at just how good it was, but I kind of, because I'd played the game before, I had some expectations for it to be good as well. 
but even then I, I was still a little surprised at just how good it was you know a game released in 1996 yeah um so as for you I don't have a bad surprise, only a good surprise, and uh, I believe this will surprise you, James, because the game that surprised me the most this year was easily Mega Man Battle Network 3. Really? What a great game. Basically, uh, for a long time, I didn't actually think it was possible for Game Boy Advance games to be good. I I haven't owned, like, a handheld console until I think the Nintendo 3DS. I wanted one, but, you know, my parents never bought one for me. So I was always very upset. But as, as I grew older, I, I didn't want one because I didn't think that it was possible for them to be good games. But I have to say the essential gameplay of Battle Network, it's deck building and it's kind of like bullet hell-esque dodging based combat um, is extremely good. Like it, it's, not just, yeah. it's not just okay, like it's excellent. The deck building gives you so many tools and it's really fun to play and experiment and come up with different strategies for different bosses and enemies. And the rhythmic gameplay is tough as nails, but also entirely fair because it uses a grid base to determine if you're taking damage. You don't have any issues with dodgy hitboxes, provided you're in the right square at the right time, you can avoid damage. Yeah. Now this stands in stark contrast to like the overall world, which I think sucks and I hate it. And I actually wouldn't recommend the game because you have to sit through so much tripe in order to get to the good stuff. But it surprised me that this game had as good gameplay as it did. It was, it, it's got really excellent gameplay. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um... Obviously, I think Battle Network 3 is an excellent game, and I think that it's really surprising that its combat hasn't been aped yet by another big title. I think it's really fun, like you said, and really, really unique. Um, I don't think there's any other game that uses this kind of like real-time card battling system uh, to such a great effect. I think um, there's an indie game coming out, One Step from Eden, which is just purely the combat, and I think you probably should give that a go because it basically removes all of the overworld RPG stuff that you kind of seem to hate so much and just gives you that pure gameplay experience. Is it in early access or has it been released? From what I can see on Steam, uh, One Step from Eden releases an early next next year um so that'll be exciting i'd definitely love to give that a go so maybe we'll uh when it comes out we can do a short little you know article or something about it um because i'd really love to see another game that takes this really successful gameplay formula and puts it into practice i completely agree like if the other thing i'd like to see is the deck building but you know I, I've got a Magic the Gathering in paper to keep me focused on deck building, <laughs> I guess. But there's there's no substitute for the um for the battle system. So until yeah. one step from meeting comes out. Alrighty, well we've been going for a little while now, and I actually have my own mailbag question that I didn't tell you about um, ahead of time. But I've got a I've got a big question for you, Patrick. Shoot. And um yeah, that is a while ago we had a few arguments because you're not a huge. Uh, want to listen to soundtracks in video games in fact i was shocked when you told me um that you just generally played with the music off and thinking about it now i probably should have used this for worst video game opinion but you know (laughs) (laughs) um here we are so what i wanted to ask you was what is your favorite um soundtrack from a game ever are there any that
that you actually like? <laughs> there are soundtracks that I like. Um, my favorite soundtrack ever is from a quite recent game called Fury. You describe the the music I get. I've seen it described as synth wave. It's kind of like a techno sort of feel, but it's more instrumental. God, I'm I'm such a pleb when it comes to describing music, but I can tell I can you, tell <laughs> I can tell you that this entire soundtrack absolutely slaps. I love it to pieces. Yeah, it is really good. Like I've played Fury to completion myself, and I think ev- like almost every single song on that soundtrack is really really good. I, I yeah. can I can listen to this soundtrack start to finish anytime. Like I I just think it's so strong, and each and every track perfectly captures the boss fight it's it's like just a it's a small masterpiece but my favorite track from the entire album is called make this right by the toxic avenger and uh it's the fight where the story starts to turn and that's all i say because i'm i'll try to avoid spoilers but it's the moment where you after it's where you start to suspect that something's not quite right and it's just like a beautiful track there's these um angelic kind of distorted choir tones and there's a particular bit towards the end where it becomes super crazy distorted which is the point in the boss fight where you know it starts ramping up and if it was anyone else i would say that's an amateurish crappy part but this super crazy distorted bit is just as her facade is starting to truly crack and you're getting to that intense moment, and it's just so perfect. I love this track from start to finish. Yeah, I think it's really good too, and um, we've been going for a little while now, so what we'll do is I'll play you a small snippet of the song, and we can take a quick music break and resume afterwards. So here's part of Make This Right by The Toxic Avenger. Moving on, I guess the next question to ask is what? <laughs> and this is my favorite question in the entire <laughs> mailbag. So, um, thank you, Ben, again for this excellent question, asking some real heavy hitters here. What was the best and worst opinion that the other person had? So, I guess this is which was Patrick's worst opinion of the year and his best opinion, in my opinion. Um, and this is a difficult one because so Patrick hard. has so many bad opinions, right? It's so right? hard. Like, how do, you, how do you pinpoint a good opinion of the other person? It's just a constant slew of bad ones. I can't give him that, um, but I guess I have to here, um, just for you, Ben. So I guess, for me, the best opinion that Patrick had was one that we've already touched on earlier this episode, actually, and that is that save states don't make for satisfying challenging games. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we've already waffled on about that. It doesn't allow for, you know, an appropriate challenge that pushes the player outside of their comfort zone. 
I thought the best insight you had was in a Diablo episode where you talked about the loop of item identification. So James said that um, Diablo 1 is a little different from modern ARPGs in that instead of identifying things immediately where you're out killing monsters, ID scrolls are like super rare. So it's a lot more natural to identify items in town and carry around a stack of unidentified items while you're actually playing the game. And he pointed out that because of that divide, you're, you didn't ever get slowed down in you know murdering monsters and exploring the level to kind of like bring up your inventory and wreck the pacing and the flow of the game. And as someone who's played Borderlands you know, 2 and 3 with friends, having to constantly stop and look and share loot and everything is a real pain in the ass. Like that game has no flow... And it feels more like you're hanging out with friends than you're having an enjoyable mm. gameplay experience. So I, I just thought that was like a really good way to articulate, you know, something which I didn't even notice when I first played. You're right. I am a genius. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess um, now that we've uh, put the uncomfortable saying nice things out of the way, um, it's I'm glad we don't have to do that again until next year. <laughs> um, what was the worst opinion that Patrick had? I think Patrick knows exactly what I'm going to say here. Um, I think Patrick... <laughs> Patrick, what do you think I think your worst opinion is? Uh, does it concern the video game Vagrant story? Yes, it actually does. <laughs> um, surprisingly, I think that Patrick disliking Vagrant Story's graphics is absolutely an awful opinion. I think Vagrant Story's graphics are in my top three for the entire year. And perhaps they don't have, you know, the nicest textures or, you know, the high resolutions on them but vagrant story makes use of its camera and of its framing of areas and its color in such a great way that it overcomes its flaws of its error and manages to still look great in a very artistic way to this day okay so let let me respond so the first thing i want to say is that after writing my article on vagrant story uh which involved watching the cutscenes over again from start to finish and kind of like getting really involved in it, I will concede that the cutscenes actually look good. And the reason for that is, as James said, the framing of a lot of the shots is extremely well done. It's kind of like directed like a movie. Yeah. So a lot of care and detail has been put into how the characters are positioned in the frame, how they stand in opposition to one another. And I do have to praise the artistry and elegance of how they've set up a lot of these shots. We spoke about movie games earlier, and I just want to say that I think Vagrant Story does a better job of being a movie game than a lot of the recent games that have come out. Sure, we'll, we'll get into that in a moment. But firstly, I need to tell you why you're fucking wrong, in my opinion, is right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because there's a big but attached to the end of that sentence. And that is... While the cutscenes graphics are bearable because of the brilliance of the direction, this game, when you play it, is ugly as hell. And I don't care what it's got nothing to do with framing. It's brown and murky and ugly. It's not atmospheric. There's no fog. It's just walls and walls of poo. It's like being in an endless sewer. I, think... I hate the look of this game. I got I didn't get anything out of the atmosphere while actually playing this game. 
and you spend way more time in menus and playing the game than actually watching hey the menus look kind of nice <laughs> but um i disagree i think i think um you're referring specifically to the caves and the mine levels there are these like necromancer crypts full of these vibrant blues and dark shadows and really interesting looking enemy vibrant blues is like stretching it a bit mate it's just more dark shades of blue it's just a dark blue texture stretched and out. there's some really good enemy designs in this game too how cool was a those like little puppet dolls with the like tiny little strings coming out of them that looked like supernatural there and... are a couple of enemies that look cool but a lot of the roster is like you fight the same giant crab like three times like, no it's twice <laughs> okay good point you only fight the crab twice in conclusion I have given James a little bit of ground on this. The, the game has good direction, but the graphics still suck. Like, this is still an ugly game. Absolutely end. not. And that's why, Patrick, this is your worst opinion of the year. <laughs> All right, what, what was that other thing you wanted to bring up about movie games before I rudely interrupted you? Um, oh, that's every time you interrupt me. Um, hmm. I think that... Um, like, you know, you're talking about the framing of shots and the artistry behind the camera angles and that kind of thing. I think, um, Vagrant Story does that better than modern games, honestly. Maybe. So, this, it, I kind of had a weird relationship with Vagrant Story's, uh, story because now, you know, I quite like it because I did all the research and I'm super into it. But, um, when I, but even when I was, like, uh, playing the game... Every time I got to stop playing the game, it was like a massive sigh of relief. I was like, ah, I can stop playing Vagrant Story. I can stop looking at these shitty graphics. So I enjoyed the cutscenes a lot more than I would have if the gameplay was actually good. But the gameplay was good. Mm, yeah, <laughs> talking about <laughs> bad opinions. All right. So, uh, I mean, that is one bad opinion. Once again, with, with James, there are so many bad hey, opinions. Hey, I had to pick, to pick one out of a sea of hundreds, Patrick. But so, the number um... one bad opinion James had was to do with uh, F-Zero GX because he had this absolutely ludicrous defense of the F-Zero GX campaign. He claimed that the campaign was a good tutorial for the Grand Prix. <laughs> are you sure See, i said that even you i am 100 percent certain you said this and the reason it's so stupid is literally mission two in mission two it's just uh you versus another guy in a big long race along this canyon where there are rocks falling isn't that mission one no that's mission two mission one you're going around the track picking up the um oh, right yep yeah so mission two it has this you know you have a boost and you've got a limited use of the boost and in the Grand Prix, what you do is you use your boost as much as possible because there are frequent places to refill your boost. If you use all your boost in the first section of this track, you cannot win yeah. because he rubber bands to you no matter how far you are ahead towards the end of the track. The only way to win this track is to literally not use your boost at all until the last 15 and 10% of the track. Yeah. So if nothing else, Mission 2 is teaching you completely the wrong lesson. But the bigger overall problem is that Mission 3 of the F-Zero GX campaign, this is Mission 3. This is the third campaign mission. I like It's the third fucking mission. impossible. <laughs> it's so hard. It is. Like, here, here's, here's my experience playing playing up to, up to Mission 3. So the first time I got to Mission 3... 
I spent like an hour and a half trying to beat it and I could not beat it. And then I said to James, all right, James, I'm just going to beat the Grand Prix on easy and see if I can beat it. So I beat the Grand Prix on easy, came back to it, spent another hour on it, and I still couldn't beat this damn third mission in the game. It wasn't that it bad. Wasn't... It only took me like Dude. an hour. <laughs> yeah, I know, James, but I hadn't played racing games before. <laughs> it, it wasn't until I had finished the entire Grand Prix, which is like 20 tracks grouped and lots of five on normal, that I was able to finally overcome this after another hour of grinding. I guess my experience with the game was that I was having a lot of trouble on the higher difficulties of the Grand Prix until I did the story, because the story forces you to get good through repetition, um, learning really tight corners and, you know, making the most out of every mechanic the game has to offer. So kind of through this trial by fire, um, I came out of it much more able to beat the harder difficulties of the GPs because, you know, the story prepared me for it. I will say I'm wrong in saying it's a good tutorial, but it is definitely, <laughs> um, it definitely made me, you know, level up my gameplay by being forced through the story. The the problem is that the regular Grand Prix, Grand Prix, nice. Love a good Grand Prix. <laughs> it gives you, um, there's a lot of different ways to beat them. Like you can beat them with using your boost well or, you know, landing off jumps properly or using combat to take out the other races or just tight tight driving you know there's a lot more room to make mistakes and keep playing but mission three if you miss a single corner like it's over oh you restart like straight away yeah so it's yeah. like start restart so a lot i felt i wasn't ever getting into the rhythm of actually learning the game it's like i was learning this very very specific skill set like i was like memorizing the correct angle to take specific turns on this track so you don't find that fun okay so the problem was instead of learning the general skill of this is how you roughly approach a corner of this angle I was learning the absolute specifics of this track, which to me isn't a tutorial. The thing I enjoyed was the Grand Prix, which is 500 different angles and gradually increasing yeah, yeah. my ability to take a turn in a general sense. Whereas when I play a racing game, the way I play them is by doing time trials rather than mm -hmm. just racing dudes. Um, and time trials are just you and the track trying to beat your best time over and over. And, you know, oftentimes when you make a bad turn near the start, you just smash that restart button. So, you know, it really reminded me of just bashing out time trials in other games. So I guess, like, I didn't have a problem with that style of gameplay of stopping and restarting always because that's, like, how I interact with racing games anyway. Yeah, see, once again, I think the issue might just be, like, this was my first racing game. So yeah. instead of... I didn't really enjoy like the leveling up the specific skill set. I more needed to learn racing games like in a general sense. Like <laughs> stuff as simple as like just rounding corners was hard for me. Like I, I, I don't know how to explain it. So throwing me to the wolves with mission three was just <laughs> like, I was like, this is not a good tutorial. This isn't teaching me anything. <laughs> but when I did the Grand Prix, that I felt I was learning a lot as I was progressing through it. So the reason it was such a bad opinion, James, was because I thought it was literally the opposite. The Grand Prix finally gave me the tools I needed to actually tackle the campaign missions, even if I never finished them. 
I'll concede that. F-Zero's story was a terrible beginning point for Patrick hmm. in his racing career. <laughs> it was. But, you know, I'm a bit more prepared now. So Yeah, so maybe one day we'll play a racing game and Patrick will be able to beat it this time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So um, the next question comes to us from Bruno again. Thank you, Bruno. What indie games have you played this year? Which were the best? And I'm going to start off by answering this very quickly. And that's uh, I played exactly one indie game this year um, called Cave Story. And you guys who've listened to this show already know how I feel about that game. Spoilers, pretty good. Um, I did not get time to play all the games I wanted to this year, what with doing the podcast and trying to keep mm. up with all the big releases that I wanted to play. So didn't get time for some indie games. None really piqued my answer. So unfortunately gonna have to go with the default answer here for me i have played a decent number of indie games i'm i'm pretty into indie games in general uh so i was able to make some time for for it even amongst the heavy schedule so um the games i played either you call you know qualifies indie uh superland katana zero uh outer wilds and environmental station alpha I'll be talking about some of these later. So I just want to, I guess, give a quick shout out to Superland. Um, Superland is like a 3D Metroidvania, you know, with some platforming and puzzles. And I had a lot of fun with this game, which is something, you know, very strange for me, having fun. It's like simple. None of the puzzles are hard. The combat is easy and like kind of like it's just something that's there the platforming is never challenging but it's a real joy to just explore superland's world and i just had plain simple fun with it and so i I highly recommend it i had a great time if you if you enjoy exploring worlds if you don't mind your games being a little bit janky because this game was a little bit janky because it was an indie developer game but uh yeah, Superland is great. I had had a lot of fun with it. So um, next question comes from Vexus, and he asks, what is your favorite villain? And we're also going to sneak least favorite villain in there. So James, do you have a least favorite villain at all? Um, and the games that we played this year or in general? J- just overall, like any any games in the history of video games. Do you, Are there any villains which you think are stupid or you don't like them? For whatever reason um so my least favorite villains are actually um from this show Ooh. um and i met these awful villains while playing f-zero gx <laughs> <laughs> um the the villains in this game are supposed to come across as like real cheesy and like comic-like and funny but they're not funny or like cheesy in a good way they're just shit like <laughs> they're not good i just hate them so much um, they're not f- like they're supposed to be funny and they're just not i don't know if this is to do with um the translation or what but they're just so forced i hated it uh, f-zero's story is very dubious the villains included so i'm it's not surprised very very this. questionable <laughs> um yourself so my least favorite is one i actually talked with um cameron the guest we had on to for halo from the sweating the small stuff podcast my least favorite villains are definitely team magma and team aqua from pokemon uh i think it's ruby pearl is is that right ruby and pearl ruby and sapphire ruby and sapphire that's it <laughs> ruby and sapphire that sounds much better so i complain a lot about this one but i'll, I'll quickly reiterate it so team aqua and team magma have opposing ideological objectives 
the problem is that ideological objective. So Team Magma wants to blow up a volcano and get rid of water to turn everything into land or most of it into land. And Team Aqua wants to reclaim the landmass and turn everything into water. So both, basically, the members of this Team Rocket Squad want to trigger a mass extinction event, murdering millions and millions of peoples and animals and probably disrupting the ecosystem to the point where everyone's going to die anyway. I thought um, I thought Team Magma's made a bit more sense than Team Aqua, right? They want to create more landmass for people to live on. That's like, I guess that makes more sense. Like, Team Aqua's is just, like, mass suicidal, right? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, but their way of creating landmass is exploding just... a volcano. Yeah, <laughs> it's <laughs> really dumb. Like, I mean, what is even going on? The, the real thing that bothers me is like all of the members of this organization are really ideologically committed to this cause yeah and they're not that <laughs> and yeah and they want to they want to murder heaps of people because of their love of either dirt or water it's not a love of like the environment it's not a love of animals these, these aren't hippies they love either dirt, or, <laughs> dirt water. or water. Hey, dirt's pretty cool. So, like, Team Rocket's always stupid. Like, even even the very early iterations, like they were just a bunch of dumb gangsters. Yeah. But I think um I think Team Magma and Team Aqua are kind of in a in a level of their own in terms of being bad villains. Before before we get into the main category, I just had an honorable mention, and that is uh, Papyrus from Undertale. Undertale's a game that I love to bits. Uh, it's unfortunate about its fan community being rabid psychopaths, but that doesn't take away from the fact that Undertale is a brilliant game. It has many great characters, many great moments, but far and away my favorite bad guy, and I'm doing that in inverted commas, is Papyrus. Papyrus. Um, he is, is a Papyrus. It's I'm a, definitely I, see, Papyrus. I love, I, love, I love Papyrus. That's why I can say his name correctly. Mm. Um, I love his commitment to observing the traditional rights of giving the player puzzles instead of just killing him. Uh, he has deadly traps and involves Shizu dogs. He has an unhealthy obsession with spaghetti. And best of all, Part of the boss fight against him is a dating simulator, yeah. <laughs> which involves a crime population and fishing meter and a radar that seems to be showing a bison. Like Undertale's great, and it's hard to like pick out one thing that's that's brilliant. But Papyrus is just like one of the funniest parts of an already hilarious game. So I guess moving on to the best villain, this was by far the hardest category for me to come up with an answer for. In general, I'm of two minds about good villains in media in general, and that's a good villain is either one of two things. Um, the first being that they're just plain entertaining. Um, they don't have to have, in this category, they don't have to have good motivations. Like, they can be stupid. They just have to, like, be entertaining and you make you want to see more of them, like, as much as you can. And the second one is a character with really good motivations, often better than the player characters. Like, you want these characters to have really, like, solid ideological basis for the evil or, like, maybe 
opposition things that they're doing to the main character. Um, when I think of video games, I actually find it very hard to think of any villain that falls into either of these categories in a video game. Uh, for like movies and books and TV shows, I find this answer a lot easier to come up with, but I just, you know, I spent hours thinking about this and just couldn't think of a villain that I actually like really enjoy in a video game. The closest thing I came up with, and it's almost like like a bit out of left field is I think that the best I guess villain that we encountered on the podcast was one that um, took place over a number of episodes actually and that was the human subconscious uh, the idea that you are your own worst villain and this was something we saw in Silent Hill 2 and again in Psychonauts and in both of these cases I found that being your own worst enemy doesn't fall victim to the pitfall of you know having bad motivations ruin the entire you know premise of the character because it's just you versus your own darkest fears and I feel that this like this kind of antagonism of the main character allows you to be really creative with what you throw at them you know Silent Hill 2 was an extremely uh, cool game when we played it and all of the things that were coming at James out of his mind were really weird abstract reflections of his inner self and that made it really engaging without you know you know you can't really poke holes in it because uh, they're just they're part of the character you know it gives you a window into these characters that you're enjoying so i think that choosing this as the kind of antagonist for the character allows you to add a lot of depth to the character hmm. it's worth pointing out that this is a sort of concept that i think is best explored in video games like, you can have variations of this in books and movies. I, no examples come to mind off the top of my head, but I'm sure there are things. Perhaps, like, uh, the movie Fight Club is a good example of it. But the process of actually having to play the video game is a really good way to get a lot of detail about, um, about a character and really flesh out a character when, when they themselves are the villain. So I, I agree with you. I think that the, that the description you've given is certainly one of the most compelling villains. Yeah, I mean, I I really like it. Um, and were you able to come up with an answer for this, like a really entertaining or well-motivated villain? Well, I kind of did. So I, I'm going to be honest. I also struggled with this question because villains are usually poorly written. Um, when I think of fantastic villains, I think movies and films, and I can list... 20 off the top of my head of villains which I think are brilliant from um, films I've seen and books I've read. But video games, they're way, way scarcer. And that has a lot to do with the antagonistic nature of video games, how you play a guy who's killing, you know, who's killing the bad guys. So you need a generic head honcho who's willing to send hundreds of his mooks to die for his yeah. glory. Uh, but I did, I did eventually find a good one. And my answer is GLaDOS from Portal 1. Oh, that's a good one, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to first specify that I think GLaDOS from Portal 1 is a different villain from GLaDOS from Portal 2. GLaDOS from Portal 2 is like crazy powerful. She's swinging panels left, right, and center. She's tricking you and deceiving you. But GLaDOS in Portal 1 is a lot is a lot weaker. When when you first play Portal 1, and, you know, I'm just going to spoil Portal 1. If you haven't played it, just pause the podcast and play it right now. But I'm sure everyone's played it by now. You go through these test chambers, uh, and, the, you know, the AI GLaDOS is speaking to, 
And I think that, at least I did, I assumed that there were humans behind all those glass test screens watching your every move. And I was looking forward to meeting them. And then when you get to the final uh, test and you're headed towards a fiery pit and you escape, you kind of realize how what's going on, right? Like it's just GLaDOS. GLaDOS has been, you know, putting you through this like she's put so many other candidates. But the thing about GLaDOS is that she's weak. You know, when you when you escape the test chambers, she you continue to hear her, but there's nothing she can really do about your movement and your escape and your eventual confrontation of her. She can only do her one old trick of releasing the neurotoxins. And I think that's really interesting. I, I think that she has, you know, she's funny and she's dark, but at the heart of it, she's also completely inept because she's just an AI. Like, she's stuck doing testing for human beings because that's what she was programmed to do. And that's what she would have done for all eternity if you hadn't, you know, broken out and easily stopped her. So, yeah, when I think of, like, compelling and interesting villains in video games, Portal 1, I think, is is head, head and shoulders above the pack. Yeah, and I definitely think that Gladys is one of these, like, super entertaining villains. Um, mm. I actually struggle to remember much of her dialogue from 1, but I do remember in 2 her being, like, very, you know, both funny and, you know, entertaining to listen to. Yeah, Portal 2 is a weird one, because I, I don't know what they could have done with the story except with what they did, because they needed to increase her threat level. Mm. But at the at the same time, I think that something was lost. There was... You know, Portal was always funny, but it was also dark. And I think that the sequel kind of moved in it in towards it being just a complete a complete farce. They kind of moved away from the darker elements of the storytelling. I feel, um, and I don't know. It, it's very hard to find that line. But I, yeah, I, I like Gladys in Portal too, but. Specifically in Portal 1, I think she's at her best. Yeah, I agree. I think Gladys is a pretty good fit for this answer. So, James, seeing as you did me the privilege of asking me what my favourite uh, video game soundtrack is, it's only fair that I repay the favour. So, James, what is your favourite song on any video game soundtrack ever? Mate, I preferred it when I was asking you the questions. Um, I knew you were going to ask me this in return, and I spent a long time trying to figure out what the fuck my favourite song is, and no matter how long I spent on it, I kept coming back to the same soundtrack, which is the soundtrack for Final Fantasy X um, that happens to be my favourite game of all time. And the one that kept sticking out to me was the main theme to Xanakand, and I have to say that no other song... Uh, in any game anywhere evokes the same kind of feelings in me that this one does. It's a really beautiful track that kind of highlights the sadness and the kind of melancholy themes that go on throughout the entire game, so hope you guys like it too. Here's to Xanakand.
So question from JY slash Asa from our Discord. What were your favorite video game mechanics or interactions from any games? Were they just interesting in a vacuum or were they cleverly implemented into the core gameplay? Oh boy, I've been looking forward to this one because I uh, I can feel the anger from Patrick as I think of saying my answer. Um, we've actually argued about this one many times off uh, offline. Um, and I, to this day, think that this is my favorite implementation of a usually really bad and annoying mechanic that I hate in other games. But in this one instance, I think is absolutely brilliant. And that is something that Patrick and a lot of other people hate, but I think that they just don't realize um, that they're wrong <laughs> and that it's actually really good. And that mechanic is the weapon degradation system in Breath of the Wild. The weapon degradation system in Breath of the Wild initially struck me as being really frustrating because you find your weapon and then there's like there's no way to repair it it just breaks after maybe 10 minutes of use and what this kind of like forces you into is this kind of gameplay loop where you're constantly scavenging new weapons off the ground in order to like replace the ones you're breaking and kind of maybe 20 minutes into escaping the tutorial of the game i realized just how good this mechanic was because what i did was i ran off into the middle of nowhere and came across an enemy um that probably i shouldn't have seen for maybe another good 15 hours and after like 40 minutes of me hitting and running it and doing all sorts of janky stuff to kill it, I managed to kill it by pushing it into like a pool of water and drowning it. Um, and it then dropped its weapon and I got its weapon and its weapon had stats that were so much better than anything I'd seen up until that point that I was just, you know, one hitting every enemy I found um, up to the area that I was up to. So... You know, if this weapon degradation did not exist, I would have been overpowered for like half of the game time, right? Like this allowed me to have my like half an hour of fun with this crazy weapon and then go back to actually being challenged by the enemies again. I think the Breath of the Wild's openness, um, it would simply not be possible without a leveling system if this weapon system was not in the game in the way that it currently is. Because, you know, most open games of this nature have like some kind of RPG stat system in order to gate the player and prevent them from, you know, just going wherever they want. But this game has this system and I think it's a lot, it's actually a really natural and, um, you know, something that I've had a lot of fun with. You know, you'd get into these fights and your weapon would break and you'd be panicking and trying to pick up these shitty sticks off the ground to throw at the goblins. And, you know, it, it made a lot of these frantic, uh, moments possible that made me enjoy the game a lot more than if it hadn't had it. So you've made a big mistake, James, and you've made a lot of mistakes, but the big one you've made is that you've uh, taken the way it's implemented in Breath of the Wild and you've gone, well, this is the only way that you can do it. But the fact of the matter is they could have done weapon degradation without it being so fucking frustrating. And once again, I talked about this on the Prince of Persia episode, but there is a very, very simple fix here, and it's only one of many possible fixes. They could have had powerful weapons that degrade, and then they could have given you weapons that don't degrade, that are of a constant power level that is a little lower than the, than the weapons that degrade. I but hate it's that. good enough that if you don't want to mess with all this inventory management, you don't have to. Because what you describe as, 
frantic fights, I instead solved through inventory management. I had at all times 15 to 20 items in my inventory, and when one would break, I would go to the next one. They're all nicely sorted by their various damage values. And as I, you know, cleared out camps, I'd find new weapons and add them to my inventory. And it was a constant replacement. I didn't have zero weapons and had to scramble. I had 15, and I kept having to replace the 15th weapon in my inventory with the 15th weapon that I picked up. And I hate that. There was nothing to be gained. There was nothing interesting about it. Let me pick a weapon and just use it. Even the master sword in this game goes on a time down, like a cool cooldown when it reaches its hit limit or whatever, and I find it so frustrating. Weapon degradation sucks, and just because Zelda, as they currently implemented it, was built around weapon degradation, doesn't mean that weapon degradation had to exist. They could have come up with something better, and it was their failure to do so. I mean, I don't think that they, like, this was their only option. Like, absolutely it wasn't. But I think that what they did, you know, was good. It, I really enjoyed it. Um, I think I would have had a lot worse time with this game if it wasn't in the game in its current state. Yeah, so, honest to God, I would prefer it just didn't exist. You just, you just, you know... You do, or, or, like I said, they just give you a weapon that has a constant power level that's a little weaker than the main ones. And like I said, Prince of Persia Warrior Within was released in 2005, and it did this perfectly. Boom, here's your main weapon. It's weaker than a lot of the weapons you pick up, but you get a cool moveset with it that's different to using the other weapons. Your damage output is a little lower, but your, your, your utility is high, and your damage is still high enough to kill enemies. Wonderful. There's no, literally no reason Breath of the Wild couldn't have had that. And its failure to have it blows my mind. It, it's just poor design. Don't make me sit through bloody inventory management because that's the optimal way to play Zelda Breath of the Wild is to sit there with your inventory and make sure you've got a constant stockpile of weapons. So what they could have done to fix that is just not have an in let you hold multiple weapons. You just have one. And if it breaks, you have to scavenge for it. Okay, that's that is interesting actually. Uh, if you're if you're forced into a situation where you have to improvise, I think that you've got a point. But the thing was I I was never put in that except for the very start and that bit where you get put on the island with no with no gear. That bit was great. Those are the only times I really had to scavenge. The rest of the time I just wanted to play the game, but I felt I had to play the menu game. Yeah. Um, I guess we had that problem with Vagrant Story as well, but uh, even worse. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, Zelda's nowhere near Vagrant Story. I think that Zelda's the sort of game that would have benefited greatly from less UI management. Like, it's it shouldn't be a UI management-based game. Hmm. So what was your um, favorite mechanic from any game? So the way I answered this mechanic, uh, this question was only in relation to the show episodes, but I still think I had a couple of good answers. So my favorite mechanic from all the show episodes we played was the photography mechanic from Pokemon Snap. Okay. Pokemon Snap was a lot of fun. Like, uh, what what constitutes a good photo is basically how big it is in your screen, whether it's facing you or not, and was it if it's striking a special pose or... Yeah, it was, yep. Yeah, so... And if so, there's multiple on the same shot. Yeah, and if there are multiple on the same shot, you got a bonus. So... And the thing was, I like really, really, really had a lot of fun with um, trying to get the best photo of the Pokemon with the point system. And it's funny because the fact that the game was on rails as well 
kind of like added to the experience, particularly when you got the um, the speed upgrade for your cart. Yeah. Because it led to a lot of spots where you were kind of like rushing to get to the perfect spot, take the perfect photo at the perfect angle. And it's something that couldn't exist if this wasn't like an on-rails game. Um, yeah, and in general, I just wish there were more photography mechanics in video games. Like, it's in Bioshock 1, and I liked it in Bioshock 1, but it was only an entire game with Pokemon Snap. And I'm telling you, like, I'm not nearly into Pokemon as I used to be, but if they made, like, a Pokemon Safari game in an open world, or what, however they chose to implement it, where the entire game was just trying to take good photos of Pokemon and you got to explore and find them all. And dude, I, that would be one of my favorite games ever. Like, yeah. I think that would be amazing. Yeah. I completely agree with you. It's a really underutilized mechanic. Um, and I was surprised at how robust those categories were mm. in the scoring system for such an old game. They worked really well. They weren't too specific such that you'd only get them a couple of times. You could definitely, you know, do a level a couple of times and then manage to get that perfect shot. And surprisingly for such an old game, those categories actually did line up with what a good photo would look like. Yes. You know, um, there isn't a way to get a perfect photo that looks bad anyway. Um, you know, you're always going to have a... If you get high points, your photo is going to look good. Generally, um, yeah, and 90% I, of yeah, the time. Yeah. yeah, and I was really, really impressed by that and how, like, relaxing and fun it is. Um, you know, it's, it's like a challenge... It's not like a te it's not like a tedious, frustrating challenge. It's like it's still you're trying to do the best you can through repetition, I guess. But it's not like tedious or painful or frustrating like a boss fight would be. It's kind of like even if you don't get the perfect shot, you know, it's still kind of comfy to just go around and snap fun photos of things. Yeah. So I I really want more game developers. I want more photography games. It was a lot of fun. I was surprised at how much fun I had with it. Yeah. Um. I also I also had a worst mechanic. Yeah. Like from the show, if you'd like me to share it. Yep. This is one we disagreed with when we did the episode, but it's the gun level up mechanic in Cave Story. How is that the so, worst? I I can understand so, so not liking just, it, just, but worst. Let me just explain it for everyone who doesn't know it. Um before before we get into it because i'm sure we will so in cave story your gun starts at level zero or is it level one uh it starts it starts, it starts at level zero one yeah and uh the max level is level three and the idea is that whenever you kill enemies they drop experience and whatever gun you're holding when you pick up the experience will give the gun experience until it levels up and every time the gun levels up, it becomes more powerful, like uh, significantly more powerful, actually, to the point where the level three version of a gun is probably like eight to ten times as powerful as the base level of the gun. Um, whenever you take damage, the gun you're currently that's currently equipped will lose experience. So let me just articulate why why I hate this with a passion, and you can you can respond. So. The idea is that when, theoretically, when you get good at platformers and good at killing enemies, you should be able to play faster and faster and more efficiently. And to a degree in Cave Story, that's true. However, I feel like this uh, gun level up mechanic actively detracts from the flow and pacing of the gameplay. Because the level 3 gun is so much more powerful than the low level guns, 
you really, really are really are disincentivized from being hit. So what that means is that instead of playing aggressively, the optimal way to play is to play slowly and carefully and kind of snipe enemies from a distance. And it's particularly true in the final section, Running Hell, before you get to the true final boss. One of the reasons that whole section is such a slog is that unless you're speedrunning it, the correct way to play that entire thing is slowly and carefully to maintain your gun level. And let me tell you, that sucks. Like, I want to be able to... The 20th time I was playing through that, I wanted to be able to blitz through but that is objectively the incorrect way to take it. You're meant to take it slowly and boring and carefully. And that's why the, what's it called? The Pulsar or something? The, 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 gun, the gun that's always max level with a charge attack. I can't remember the name of it. But that gun, when I got it, that's literally all I used. That and the rocket launcher occasionally. Because I didn't want to deal with this level up mechanic and I wanted to play aggressively. Yeah, so I kind of agree with you that it shows its flaws in that final level, um, especially so. But for the rest of the game, you know, whenever I found a new gun, I was really excited to find out what it turned into when it leveled up. Like, especially there was this little bubble shooter that you could find optionally in a house that did, like, pathetically weak amounts of damage. And I thought that, wow, this must be one of those, like... You know, there's there's this um, running gimmick in games that I've seen where the worst gun, in, like, or the worst follower in this game, like, if you put a lot of effort in, ends up being the best one once it's leveled up. And uh, it mm-hmm. was the same, one of the same things here. Like, it turned into this, like, weapon that was able to clear a whole screen um, if you used it correctly. And, you know, every time I managed to get a level up and shoot something for the first time, I feel like I found it was just an absolute joy. I, I loved experimenting with the guns. And honestly, I wish the guns had more levels so that I could have kept doing that throughout the game. Whereas what ended up happening was that halfway through the game, I'd seen everything. And, you know, I lost that joy of experimentation. And as you said, it became a little tedious. And... While that was annoying, I definitely don't think it's like the worst game mechanic ever. Um, And I took this question to mean kind of like worst mechanic from any game, really. So despite me saying before that Breath of the Wild's weapon degradation is my favorite implementation of a mechanic, in general, my actual worst mechanic is... Uh, repairing armor in games in general (laughs) i fucking hate that shit it's just so annoying there is like other than maybe a bit of a flavor reason there's like no reason it does nothing other than drain your money um and like force you to use shit weapons that you don't want to use or like more often than that actually just go back to town and repair and then have to slog your way to you know where you were up to in the game i find it so tedious um i would honestly rather a game have weapon degradation where weapons always break and just not be able to repair them i find it so annoying there was this um funny bug i mean i didn't find it funny at the time but there was this funny bug in dark souls 2 where if you were playing the pc version at a high frame rate your weapons would degrade three to four times (laughs) faster than than what they intended because the weapon degradation was tied to the frame rate so who the fuck thought that was a good idea so so when you're playing dark souls 2 your weapons would break so quickly 
and there was a ring that increased the um the durability of your weapons and it was basically mandatory on the pc version and even with that ring that would degrade too quickly like you'd get halfway through a section like just just fighting enemies normally not doing anything special not grinding and your weapon would break <laughs> and you'd have to swap to your shitty backup weapon and it was yeah ugh. when when they when, the real? when they got rid of that in Dark Souls three and even the way it was kind of like lazily implemented in Dark Souls one where it took years for your weapon to degrade was far preferable to uh, to the nightmare of Dark Souls two weapon degradation. Yeah, and like I can see positives to a weapon degradation system, but those positives are always completely negated if you have an, a way to repair the weapon. Um, because, like, the good thing about degradation is that it forces you out of your comfort zone and to try new things, but if you can repair your weapon, like, the system just doesn't exist, basically. Uh, you just have to, like, annoyingly go back to town every few hours. Yeah, it's, it's a time waster and an economy thing. Yeah, and it just, like, flat-out deletes, like, interesting mechanics. I, I just hate it so much. Um, I can't think of a single system uh, in any other game that I hate as much as having to repair armor. I, I hate inventory sorting. Like, I hate... I, I know you love it. I know it's your jam. But but one of the things <laughs> that frustrates me is when... It's so cathartic. Mo modern games have auto-inventory sorts, except for Path to, to Exile, for some reason. Path to Exile is a magic card, Patrick. Path of Exile doesn't <laughs> have an inventory auto-sort for some reason, because the people who played are autistic like you, Jay. Yeah. Our uh, final question is what was the best non-podcast game you played this year? So James and I obviously have played a shitload of games for the podcast. Yeah. We've also played some non-podcast games. So we thought we'd top off the mailbag with the best non-podcast game we played uh, with some honourable mentions. What Do you have uh, any honourable mentions, James? Um, so I have two. Um, the first honourable mention goes to Catherine Fullbody, which is basically a remake of a game I had already played like four times to completion prior. And, you know, it was just as fun playing again as I have previously. Uh, Catherine's a game that I overlooked when it came out and maybe played five years after it came out and then ended up being one of the best games I've ever played honestly it is a very complete very focused experience um, unlike anything I've ever played before um, if you're unfamiliar with it it kind of ties together a sort of uh, visual novel style like romance thriller with you know a lot of block pushing puzzles which on the surface seems a bit weird but actually ties together extremely well in the game and it's the kind of game i'd recommend everyone give it a go even if maybe on the surface you'd think it's not your thing um but i'd already played that game before um so i guess for me um, my honorable mention for like a new game that i hadn't played before this year actually goes to atelier riser now atelier riser is a game i picked up you know after seeing much much fan art of the game that was all over the internet and you know had me uh, interested and i actually ended up liking the gameplay a lot like a lot a lot it's a very easy but comfy game this is a game where you go around the game world picking up you know ingredients to use in alchemy and you know make all sorts of potions and weapons and that kind of thing and like i've played games with crafting systems before but this game's crafting system 
is just like the meat and potatoes of the game rather than being something you know tacked onto the side and not really fitting very well which is honestly the case in most games with crafting systems but this game it's like the entire core gameplay and i you know i found it really relaxing the game's got a very laid-back story that takes you know hours upon hours to actually get going which is something i actually really like in stories you know where you've got this really relaxed atmosphere and you just have characters being themselves and interacting with each other without some kind of like contrived plot thing to push the plot forward it just happens very naturally and overall i was very surprised how enjoyable such a slow paced you know relaxing game was for me um did you have any honorable mentions i mean firstly i i think that one day i might try out that Catherine game you talked about it sounds intriguing enough to give it a go yeah but i don't think i'll ever play italia riser i just googled what <laughs> it looked like a second ago yeah it I... looks like generic trash anime jrpg yeah, it's great <laughs> it also doesn't sell in my game at all yeah but uh but i'm glad you enjoyed it james my um my honorable mention is sekiro shadows die twice Everyone knows I'm obsessed with Dark Souls, and so when From Software released their new game, it was one of the very few games that I pre-ordered because I love their games to pieces, and Sekiro is absolutely no exception. It's interesting in the way it deviates from the Dark Souls formula. Instead of giving you, you know, 10 different play styles and lots of different weapon sets and magic and all these different bits and pieces... It instead gives you one weapon, and the main mechanic is powering. It's a very far more focused experience than Dark Souls. But that barely matters because the intrinsic gameplay here uh, is the best it has ever been in Dark Souls. The boss fights are the best they have ever been. Yes, you are forced to play in a particular way, but this is such a focused and well-executed experience that I don't mind a bit. The other thing I enjoyed about it was it kicked my ass. I had to learn this game essentially from scratch. The combat system is such a deviation. Uh, it's a fantastic game. Uh, I loved it a lot. I'm really interested to see what From Software does moving forward with this new title, Eden Ring. Because what I would love is that they keep everything they've got from Sekiro, this parrying system, and make it just one of many potential playstyles. Because, you know, the great thing about Dark Souls is you can be a magic user, you can use daggers, you can use a big two-handed weapon, you can parry, you can do whatever. You, there are a lot of different ways to approach the game. What I would like to see is the same level of sophistication we saw with this, you know, katana parrying system brought to something like a two-handed weapon or a sword and shield system and just make this combat system like expand in width to have different strategic approaches depending on what weapon you choose i would be annoyed if they tried to make this combat system more complicated because then you end up with something like neo and i found that the combat system in neo was like a little too oh, it's, cumbersome it's not it's nowhere near as good um sekiro's combat feels extremely polished mm -hmm. every movement um in the game just feels good especially the addition of the grappling hook um, or the rope, whatever you want to call it. Um, being able to like jump up around and have this vertical mobility that was absent in Fromm's games prior, you know, except for maybe Armored Core, um, but that hardly counts. Well, Dark Souls 2's uh, 
Dark Souls 2's expansions had a but it's little... nowhere near on the level of this, right? No. I think um I think it's a very satisfying mechanic that allows you to play into stealth, into traversal. One of the things about the other From games is that, you know, traversing the environment is a bit of a slog after you've been through it a few times, but in Sekiro I enjoyed just like shooting around the place like Spider-Man. <laughs> it was really, really fun. Um and I like agree with you, I would like a bit more variety in the weapons in the future titles but what is here is so well done that I don't even mind that there's only one real playstyle. It's just so well polished and there's heaps of enemy variety and I agree with you, the, some of the bosses that I did fight in this game were, you know, some of the boss fights um, I've ever seen. I, I never got up to it myself, but I saw several people in my house getting up to the gorilla fight, and man, hmm. that thing is intense, and I loved the twist at the, uh, no spoilers, at the end of the fight. It was so funny. Um, I, I, There's I, a further twist. Yeah, well. I, re I really enjoyed <laughs> basically every boss I encountered in this game and saw my roommates playing, um, and actually, like, I completely agree with everything you said regarding, like, the feel of the combat, and it, they've taken what they're good at and they've honed it to a point but they've also changed it enough that again you really have to learn the systems from scratch without it feeling like too alien so i think they did an incredible job here and i actually picked sekiro as my like best game of the year that we didn't do on the podcast because of all this mm -hmm. it was very close to me it was nearly my game of the year um i will say that something that continues to disappoint me is that i think that the world building of dark souls one like all that time ago is still the best that they've done not not necessarily in terms of lore but in terms of how the world is so interconnected and how without the with the lack of fast traveling until you get like you know two-thirds of the way into the game you just naturally discover all of the ways all these different places are connected and from software, for all of their brilliances in other areas, they've never managed to replicate or reach the heady heights of Dark Souls 1's macro level design. Yeah, I agree with that. But um, what then is your game of the year, Patrick? So my game of the year is a game called Outer Wilds. And it's not Outer Worlds. That's something that's been confused a little bit. This is an indie game called Outer Wilds. It came out in March, but I only finished it properly a few months ago yeah this game is is wonderful it's the best exploration game i've played in my entire life the premise of outer wilds is that you are an explorer of your solar system an ancient alien race used to inhabit all the planets on the solar system but they've uh but they're they're gone they've mysteriously disappeared but the ruins and remains of the things that they constructed are still all over the place but as you take your dinky craft to explore the solar system to learn about these aliens, you realize that you're in a time loop. Every 22 minutes, the sun in your solar system goes supernova and destroys everything. But instead of dying, when you die, you just get sent back to the beginning of the time loop. So the gameplay of Outer Wilds is about you going to all these different weird and wonderful places, mostly planets, and trying to uncover the history of the Nomai, which is the name of the race that was mysteriously disappeared, why the sun is going supernova, and how to stop it. It's like a Metroidvania where knowledge is what unlocks the doors. Like, uh, for example, there's one planet that's covered in these um, water tornadoes. It's a water planet. 
And as you're on it, these water tornadoes will throw the land masses into space only for them to slowly be pulled by the gravity back to the planet. And you can see something in the core of this planet, but you can't get through it. And you discover the secret to how to reach the core of that planet on a completely different planet on the opposite end of the solar system in some research journal that was sent there from one nomad to another. And that's how the whole game unfolds. It unfolds organically where every single thing in this game is accessible if only if only you can figure out how. And yeah, it's just a joy to explore and piece together the mysteries of what happened in the Outer Wilds. It's uh it's a beautiful game. As much as I love Sekiro, Outer Wilds is even better. You should you should definitely play Sekiro, but Outer Wilds is like it it, it stands out as one of those brilliant experiences. It it's a, a truly wonderful game. Highly recommend it. Perfect. So I guess uh, that brings us to the end of the episode then. Um, what have we got for next fortnight? So our original plan was to have like a mailbag section and a game of the year section all in one episode. But we realized as we were doing it that this was taking a very, very long time. And the final episode length would be like four plus hours. So we've decided to split into two bits. This was the mailbag episode. And next episode, we're doing our game of the year. So based on all of the podcast episodes, we're going to be listing off a bunch of categories, just like the Oscars. There'll be categories for best graphics, best soundtrack, best gameplay, etc., etc. And we will give you a list of the games which succeeded and the games that failed the most in each and every category. And uh, for all those people that were looking forward to the uh, the Game of the Year categories, don't feel like you're missing out. Um, next fortnight, the plan was to actually not release an episode <laughs> and just have a bit of a break. So, you know, you guys are getting a whole extra episode because uh, we took too damn long on this one. So I uh, hope you guys are going to enjoy that. I couldn't help it. When we got to the bit where I had to talk about James's bad opinions, it just it just went on too long. Oh, really? I thought it was the bit where you had to talk about Dark Souls. <laughs> <laughs> I managed to talk about Dark Souls several times over the course of this yeah, show. Yeah, it was pretty impressive. That's got to be a record. Yeah, I know it is. Uh, what is it, seven, <laughs> seven or eight mentions? Normally, I keep it to one or two per episode. Oh, God. But uh, that about wraps it up, yeah? So uh, thank you, everyone, for submitting their questions. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, if you'd like to submit a question, or if you just want to hang out and talk about video games or argue with us, all of these are good possibilities. We would love if you would drop by our Discord. All of our content is accessible through our website, which is rspodcast.net. And we've got links to things like our Twitter and our email on there, um, at retpodcast and www.retrospectivepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, I've also written a bunch of articles this year about all the games we've played. So if you uh, have listened to an episode and you enjoy it, there'll be some additional content for you to consume if you'd like to. But overall, thanks for being with, with us. Thanks for listening to this uh, to this kind of fun, fun one-off episode. Yeah, and we'll see you again next time for the uh, part two. So until then, see you later. Bye.